0: Turn to Luke chapter 1. So we continue in the third installment of our study, the Savior's Saga. And this morning, is Mary is with Elizabeth. She's about to leave. And she's in the midst of experiencing that new normal that we saw last time as we gathered together. What a beautiful picture this is. And what an encouragement it is to us as the body of Christ that these things which we read... Are not new and it is very important that we as the body of Christ remember that Scripture comments on itself and so much so that these things uh, were spoken to us that this messenger would come and very specifically this messenger would come and there would be a very specific message that he would bring and so John the Baptist is about to be born he's going to come on the scene and this is the first of two miraculous comings. As I shared with you last time, we all believe in miracles. The real differentiation is is how many miracles do you believe in? To what extent do you believe that God still does them? And I believe that God still does miracles, and he needs to do one in the Middle East right now. And we need to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Uh, we need to pray for the people of Syria. Uh, I want to publicly applaud our president for doing the right thing and not acting uh, on a whim, I think it's very important that we ponder what's going on right now before we should take any military action which very likely could bring retaliation against the nation Israel. And so as we think of those miraculous things, only God can do that. God impresses upon the hearts of kings and counselors that which he wants them to do and know. And, and we need to remember that God alone is in the miracle business. And he still does that. And this morning as this wonderful foretold event takes place, uh, we are privy to it by having it in our laps as God's written word. But the Jewish people had it as his spoken word at that time because the prophet Malachi had said a messenger would come. The prophet Isaiah had said that there would be one who would announce the coming of the Messiah. And that was the prophetic word there in Isaiah 40 and Malachi chapter 3, uh, that this voice crying in the wilderness uh, would be born. And so this morning we'll pick up in verse 56. We're going to finish chapter 1 and Savior Saga part 3. Would you pray? Father, we thank you. Lord, I thank you for your word. And Lord, just for the encouragement that it is that uh, you have not forsaken the Jewish people. That Lord, your hand stretches out even now to keep your covenants. You are a covenant-keeping God. And we know one day that your word declares that all this will be saved. Lord, we sure see those signs on the horizon. Lord, we never thought that we might live in a time that would see the fulfillment of so much of your prophetic word. And so, Lord, uh, may we glean... From the truth this morning which you want us to hear. Bless us, anoint your word, help us to receive it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 56, and it says, And Mary re- remained with her, that her being Elizabeth, about three months, so her cousin Elizabeth and she are together, and returned to her house. And now remember uh, that there's a pretty good journey, maybe two days, perhaps three days, depends on how quickly you walk, how many animals you have, between uh, Bethlehem, between Nazareth and Jerusalem. One's in the south, one's in the north. And so you have these two cities and Nazareth being that hometown that Mary is from. She's now going to return and she has spent time with her cousin and you remember that she was loved and she was cared for. She was counseled during that time. And how important it is for us to glean that truth. That when people come to us and perhaps there's something in their life that they don't have all the answers for, and I know Mary didn't have all the answers. She got some of them from the angel, but I'm sure she had a few questions. That what she got from her cousin was care and counsel and concern. Be open to be that care and that counsel and that concern. So very often we're quick to judge, we're quick to grill, we're quick to accuse, we're quick to leap to judgment, we're quick to think that we know that we know. And uh, very often when people come to us for those difficult things in life, we've already made up our minds what we're going to say to them. Sometimes they simply need care and counsel. And And so Mary received that from Elizabeth, from Zacharias, by a tablet. Remember, he still can't talk. He's sitting there in the house. I wonder how many tablets he wore out. At the time, there were a couple of different ways that that occurred. Uh, One of them was a wax tablet. It would actually take a border, usually of some type of wood, sometimes of clay, but inside of that clay they would make a small clay uh, much like our iPads look today, and about the same size actually and they would take and fill that with beeswax, and then they would take a stylus, basically like we would use again on a tablet, and you could write then in the wax and so it was kind of like a modern day et- or a, an ancient day etch-a-sketch if you will, so I think Zacharias had his little etch-a-sketch there and he's writing all kinds of questions on there as fast as he can uh, in Hebrew, which wouldn't have been very fast in wax, but nonetheless he was able to communicate. And so here these questions have been asked, and it I believe it's highly likely because he was uh, one of the priests that was responsible for teaching in the temple. Uh, remember that we shared on that a couple of weeks ago that highly likely he may have actually given perhaps some type of a written uh, piece of parchment to Mary, sending her back. Hey, I've listened to her story. Uh, He was a priest in the temple, and so maybe he gave her a certificate and said, you know what, what she's going to tell you is going to sound fabulous. It's going to sound like it can't be true, but I'm telling you it's true because my wife Elizabeth is 80, and she's about to have a baby too. So there were a couple of miracles, and we're going to learn of the first one this morning. Verse 57, if you'd read this with me. Now, and now, Elizabeth's full time had come for her to be delivered, and she uh, brought forth a son. So John the Baptist was born, and then her neighbors and relatives heard how the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. Would you circle or underline that word mercy? Remember what mercy is. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. It's the easiest way to understand it. It tells you that this work was a work of God and not of any greatness in Elizabeth. This wasn't greatness on Zachariah's part. This wasn't that they were better than everybody else. It wasn't that they filled out their parental superiority forms. Uh, in the temple and you know they were chosen out of thousands of couples that applied to be you know this amazing foster parent of, of the spirit world and they would have a baby brought into their life that was John the Baptist it was God's mercy raining down on this family. It's in spite of, and that's probably the best way for us to understand God's mercy in our own lives. Very often what God does, He does in spite of us. Amen? Can I have an amen from you senior saints? Amen. It's in spite of us. We're not perfect. We blow it. We biff it. We do all kinds of dumb things that really God should go, you know, that's kind of silly, and here's the payment for it. But in mercy, He does not do that. He grants us favor in spite of our faults and weaknesses. And so the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. You know, when you give God the glory for what God does, you enable people to rejoice. When you give God glory for what God does, you enable people to rejoice. But if you take credit for it, you also steal the ability for people to rejoice. Because rejoicing is us offering up praise to God. It's not simply saying, wow, that was good. It's us saying, God, you are good. Remember the difference. Because a lot of times we just simply want to declare that something is good. We need to use it as an opportunity to tell people who is good. He is good. And his mercies endure forever. Amen. And so it was on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him by the name of his father, Zacharias. Now you remember what happened back in the early part of this chapter, specifically in verse 13. The angel Gabriel is speaking, and the angel Gabriel says, You shall call his name John. God said so, therefore do it. He's going to be John. He's not going to be Zacharias. It was very common, and in fact, one of the reasons that it's so difficult at times in biblical archaeology to discern which Zachariah they're talking about or which Isaiah they were talking about, normally firstborn male children were named after the father. And so you could have Zachariah 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 maybe even at times. There could be great-great-great-grandparents still around. People had children at a very early age. Very often there were four generations at least alive at one time. So here they said, well, we would have called him Zacharias, but mm, God had different plans. His mother answered and said, no, he shall be called John. Would you underline that? When God speaks to you, your response should be, that's what I'm going to do. God had said it. He'd sent a messenger. He'd sent an angel. He said, here's what we're going to do. This is what's going to happen. I don't know about all of you, but I've had trouble at times in my life doing what God says. Oh, I know what it says. It's the doing part that I have trouble with. Maybe some of you have trouble with that as well. When God says it, we believe it. That should settle it. For Elizabeth... She was settled on the matter. But they said to her, Hey, look, sis. Uh, There's no one among your relatives who's called by this name. There's not a single John. Now, in a cultural context, that was a very strange thing. We don't think about it so much because we think it's rather cute to try and pick a name that nobody else in our family has. We're exactly the opposite now. Well, I'm going to name my kids anything but, you know, my dad's name or my name. Remember when Connie and I were trying to think of names for our children. I mean, we didn't, there was no conversation about, well, he'll be Glenn number three or whatever. You know, what's going to happen? But in this day and time, children were still believed to be a heritage from the Lord. And so you were really honoring God by saying, Lord, you made John 1, and you made John 2, and you made John 3. So it was a biblical issue at that time to name your children after their heir. It was God's faithfulness that allowed that family to exist. It was a biblical issue. And so he says, nobody. Nobody. And so they made signs to his father. Now, I don't know, it appears that there may have been a problem with his hearing as well, but Zacharias is sitting by, and, you know, again, as I shared with you, a pastor who can't talk, this is probably one of the most frustrating things on the face of the earth, but that's what you have. You've got a priest who's sitting there in his own home, and he can't say a word, and his wife is speaking for him. At that day and time, that was the type of thing that drove men nuts. And so he's sitting there with his little tablet, and whether it was fresh clay, and he was writing that, or wax, or perhaps a piece of parchment uh, in a quill, we don't know. Could have been any of those things. But he asked for a writing tablet, and he wrote, his name is John. He, he confirmed what his wife had said. He says, you know what, God spoke. That's good enough for us. We'll name him John. John. And it was at that time that they all marveled, and immediately his mouth was open, and his tongue was loose, and he spoke the first words out of his mouth were praising God. Can I give you a little secret here, that when God speaks, and you obey and do what God says, that the result of that is you praising God? It's what happens. Because I can tell you the opposite is also true. When God speaks and you don't do what he says, you're going to end up bemoaning whatever it is that you did that didn't match up with what God said. It won't be praise. It it will be a a time of mourning that very often follows not following what God has said. And he praises God, and then fear came on all who dwelt around them. And all these sayings were discussed throughout all the hill country of Judea. They made an issue out of it about which God could receive glory. Do you make an issue out of the things in your lives about which God can receive glory? When God does something, let me rephrase that for you, when God does something in your life, and it's clear that God's done something in your life, do you make it such an issue that people around you know that God did something in your life? Does he get credit for what he's done? You know, sometimes it bothers me when I listen to pastors talk. One of the difficulties of going to pastors' conferences is, is hearing you know, a few folks take responsibility uh, for the things which God has clearly done. We give people an opportunity to see the glory of God when we give glory to God. But if we steal God's glory... Well, you know, my wife is just really special. Well, after all, you know, I've served in the temple for 50 years. What do you expect? You see, they could have said other things. They could have said other things. They could have stolen the glory of the Lord. They said, well, this is just a result of us faithfully serving God, and he just honored that. Now, to some degree, there's a measure of truth to that. But the greater glory goes to God when we simply say God did a miracle. Used a clay pot, used an earthen vessel to accomplish his great work. No explanation for it given from a human perspective, but the Lord has built the house. The Lord has done the work. And that is why the fear came on them. That word fear there is reverence. It's not fear like we think of if you watch some kind of scary movie. It's the understanding that God is who God is and God does what he does. It's that understanding that God alone is in the miracle business. He does things that are outside of space, outside of time, that go against the laws of biology, against the laws of physics doesn't mean that He always and in every way needs to or must work in that way. But when you see things you can't explain, there's an explanation that explains all the things you can't explain. God is able. Amen? When I look at my world, I just simply say God is able. There are things I don't get, I don't understand, I don't know. I I look at our world today and, and I just, Lord, only You could do that. Only You could accomplish those things. And then all those who heard them kept them in their hearts, saying, What kind of child will this be? You see, when you named a child during that day and time, you were also making a statement about the apparent direction that child's life would go. And so in this case, this is a wandering away from what Zacharias was. What was Zacharias? Zacharias was a priest. And they're going to name him John. There were no priests named John. It's like, man, you're, what are you doing? You're kind of taking him out of that, you know, that godly heritage of all of the Zechariah. I. I don't know what the plural of Zacharias is, but Zacharias is, is, is. Zechariah, I, I don't know. You're going to knock him out of that line. He's not going to be Zachariah number eight or whatever. He's going to be John 1. Hallelujah that we needed a John 1. Amen? You see, at that point in time, the Jews looked upon their children as Psalm 127 128 both say. They were a heritage. They were a blessing from the Lord. How different is our world today? Children aren't looked at by many people as a blessing from the Lord, but as a curse. That was very foreign to them then. And I pray that it returns to being foreign to us now. His name John, interestingly enough, means God is, or Yahweh very specifically, has been gracious. Now think about who he is, what he's going to do, and is that not the perfect name for him? because he would be the forerunner, the one who would announce the coming of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Messiah of Glory, the only hope for mankind, the one who would be the Redeemer. He would say, I am not worthy to tie his sandals. That's Jesus. God is salvation. I am simply, God has been gracious. He was picturing grace. Every time someone mentioned his word, his name, how you described him, who he was, they would hear, Yahweh has been gracious. Now when I think of John the Baptist, there's one word that we all associate with him, probably everyone in here would get it, and that would be the word repent, amen? That was his message, wasn't it? We'll see that. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. But repentance has a purpose, does it not? Repentance is that sign that we've heard the message of grace, that we have decided to follow Jesus, and I am persuaded that He is able to keep that which He's committed under the day of Christ Jesus, that He in fact will transform and renew my mind, that He will indeed save me from myself, that He will cleanse me from my unrighteousness. You see, when I think about the message, repent, what I think about is the result of repentance, which is God's grace being poured out upon me, because if we confess, He is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse. Amen? You you see, John was, Yahweh has been gracious. Because grace is unmerited favor. Amen? It's unmerited favor. It's unwarranted attention from God in heaven. And nothing would be more unwarranted than God sending His only begotten Son to this earth to die for me. You talk about a bad deal for God. Think about it for a second. Would you have sent Jesus to earth for you? I think most of us, if we're honest, would say, "Mm mm-mm. Let me help you sort through that a little bit. Would you have sent your only begotten son or daughter, I don't care which, whichever one you want to use in this analogy, would you have sent your only child, the only one you would ever have, to this earth for the likes of Adolf Hitler, Benito Mussolini, Pol Pot, Mao Zedong, Kim Jong-il, You see, Jesus came to the earth to die for the sins of all mankind, for as many as received him to them. He's saying, this is good enough for everybody. You only need to receive it and believe it, and you'll be saved. So from God's perspective, he made salvation available to everybody. John, Yahweh is gracious. Amen? It's the picture. That's why he's the voice crying in the wilderness. The eight days passed and the normal time for the circumcision of a male child uh, occurs. There's an interesting word here that's translated in the New King James, and it refers to Zacharias's tongue being loosened. Now remember, it was kind of a punishment because he didn't believe initially, and so he's made silent for this whole gestation period, nine months and eight days. And then Dr. Luke uses a medical term, and he uses the word, and it's translated immediately in your Bible, but it's the Greek word parachroma. Perachroma means that the color change was immediate. It's just like if you imagine you got a huge bruise and I said to you parachroma and touched your arm and that bruise disappeared. It was an immediate change for the good. It was healed. It's in the reference of healing. In other words, okay, your unbelief is over. You're healed. Your tongue is loosened. Now you can speak because you're ready. You you see, what God was saying was, it's time for you to now speak up. God had broken his silence. Now, remember when this time is. From the time of Malachi the prophet. So, when you look in your Bible, you look at the last book in the Old Testament, till this time, the time of the New Testament, the birth of Christ, is 400 years. God had had no prophet on the earth for four years hundred years and so now he's going to begin to speak again on his own behalf he's going to use john to tell people about jesus he's going to have a prophet on the earth again god had broken his silence notice it says there that the hand of the lord is with him And I love this, because let me tell you something about having your hand with someone else's hand. You can't do it unless you're close, amen? It's not possible. You know, somebody's on the other side of a football field. Well, we're holding hands. It's figurative, but we're holding hands right now. It it gives that sense that God was close to John, and John was close to God. That you couldn't separate them. They were literally holding hands is the picture that's given here. They were like this. Can you say that about yourself? That you want to hold hands with God? That you want to be so close that you could intertwine your fingers with His? Sometimes we wonder how these prophets had the relationship they did. It's because they dared to get close. I see in our world a lot of Christians that don't want to be close to God because they don't want to be responsible for what they're thinking and doing. And so they keep a hands off relationship with God. They keep an arm's length relationship with God. And, and if that's you this morning, I want to challenge you snuggle up, get close. Grab his hand. Walk with him. John grabbed God's hand. And he said, God, wherever you go, I'll go. I remember when our boys were young, one of the things that we started hiking with them when they were, well, they were too young to hike, actually. But one of the things that you don't entrust little children to do is them gripping your hand. You grab their hand. Because when you grab their hand, they can't get away. Remember that when you reach out for God, He's going to grab your hand. He wants to be that close. He wants to put you in that place that you ought to be. Pick up now in verse 67, and here we have the declaration of Zacharias. It's really a prophetic word is what he's speaking. And he speaks some words about Jesus, words about the Jews. And first, it says in verse 67, And now his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, so it's very clear. These are prophetic words. He's actually singing a song, but it's a prophetic song. Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Would you underline the word redeemed? It means to buy back. They had prostituted themselves. If you're with us in the study of the book of Hosea, it becomes very clear that you can hear the truth and not be a doer of the word. You can go the wrong way. But when someone redeems, it's not because the person is worthy. It's because the one who redeems has chosen to do so. God says very clearly here that he's going to redeem the lost people. He's going to buy them back. They don't deserve it. It's not of their merit. It's of God's grace. And so John, being that picture of grace, and Zacharias speaking Uh, of what His Son would bring into this world, for He has visited and redeemed His people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David. Notice what He says here. He's just reminding everyone of what He Himself knew as He had studied the passages of Scripture that to us could be familiar. If you've studied your Bible, if you've read the book of Isaiah, if you've read the book of Zechariah, if you've read the book of Daniel, been with us as we've studied those books, As you read the book of Hosea, as you look at the Old Testament and all that's said there, 486 windows of the Messiah are found in the Old Testament. They're about to be opened fully in the New Testament. They were closed windows through which you gazed in the Old Testament times. There would be one who would come. He would be a prophet like unto Moses, but greater than he there would be one upon whom the government of his his peace would be in this world, and of it there would be no end. That there would be a child born, a son given. There would be the seed of a woman. all of these things that made pretty much not a lot of sense when they were first spoken. It's like, really, the seed of the woman? What's that? All of those things that were said were about to unfold before their very eyes. One who would be lifted up on a tree, who would not be cursed, but be blessed because he was lifted up on a tree. The one who would be that tree thrown into the bitter waters of life that would sweeten it. The one who would be the man. All of those things that the Jews were going, man, who does this point to? They were all pointing to Jesus. And it was about to become very real to them. And so as Elizabeth gives birth to the messenger, what she's really saying is, all of these things that God has told us in times past are about to get very, very real to us. One of the great tragedies is the blindness that has come upon the nation Israel that exists until today. Because you can't read the Old Testament and not go, boy, that sure sounds a whole lot like Jesus Christ. That He would be beaten, He would be bruised, that the date of His arrival in Jerusalem would be predicted by the prophet Daniel. You could just go on and on. We could spend weeks, months, talking about what the Old Testament had said would be the Messiah's life. All manner of it spoken to, that he would be killed, he would be in the grave three days, and yet not kept there, that Sheol could not hold him, David said. And a simple thing here, it says he'd come from the house of David. Where did the Redeemer come from? The Old Testament tells us. God had promised that the Savior would be a Jew, Genesis chapter 12. He'd be from the tribe of Judah, Genesis chapter 49. He'd be from the family of David, 2 Samuel chapter 7. He would be born in Bethlehem. His exact city, according to Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, was given to us. We knew before it happened. The Jews knew before He came. And now John was going to open up his lips and go, Hey guys, the one that I'm telling you about is the one that God already told you about. A coming Redeemer would keep those covenants. And then some words about the Jewish people themselves. Verse 70, And as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets. In other words, now Zacharias is saying, Hey guys, remember he's a priest. He's well-trained in biblical knowledge. He certainly has an understanding of the Old Testament prophets and highly likely also the first five books of Moses. So he has this information. He's undoubtedly read from the scroll of Isaiah because remember when this time is, we have a complete scroll uh, of the book of Isaiah that exists today that has been dated to 212 B.C., So Zachariah, maybe he read from that scroll. We don't know. But I guarantee you that he had that information. So when he read Isaiah 52 and 53, he's going, really? Kind of sounds a whole lot like the guy who's going to come. He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets who have been in the world since the world began. God has always had a voice. And for 400 years, God said, look, you guys aren't listening. You're not hearing what I have to say. I've given you all of these prophets. You weren't hearing them. I'm not going to say anything for a while. Now God's going to open His voice again. Notice what He says, that we should be saved from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us. God still has a plan for the nation Israel. One of the things that troubles me very greatly is when I hear our politicians begin to beat the drum that Israel needs to go it on its own. The moment we do that, we declare ourselves to not be the friend of God because they're his people. And he has declared, I will bless those who bless them, and I will curse those who curse them. And so it's not a good thing to be on the wrong side of God's opinion of his people. He says that they will be saved to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. God made the Abrahamic covenant with the children of Israel, and he will keep it. We'll talk about that in a moment. The oath which He swore to our father Abraham to grant to us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all of our days. He's talking about what we do when we have a right relationship with God. Number one is we serve Him. Number two is we live saintly or sanctified lives. We live in holiness before the Lord. Now I can tell you the Jewish people haven't quite gotten there yet. They're still looking for the Messiah. The Messiah has already come. The good news is He's coming back. The bad news is, before he gets here, there's a lot of things that are going to unfold on this earth that your Bible tells us will happen. As we look at Syria today, you read Ezekiel 38 and 39 carefully. You're going to find the nations listed there are the nations that are currently gathered in opposition to Israel that the United States faces a choice as to whether we are going to stand against them and with Israel or with them and against Israel. This is not new news. This news is 2,700 years old. We knew this day was coming a long time ago. Meshach and Tubal would join together and their allies, Persia, Syria, Egypt, Jordan, Lebanon would one day rise up against the nation Israel and would surround them, your Bible says. Gee, well, I don't know that that's happened. Unless you've looked at a map recently. Israel is surrounded by its enemies. But God, your Bible says, is going to keep his covenant with Israel. It was completely unconditional. Read Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. Read those chapters. As you read what God said to them, He made no conditional approvals on His side. He said, It's my land, I'm giving it to you. You see what He was saying to them as He would grant that they would be delivered, provided they had the right relationship with him. They're still waiting for that right relationship with God. And so the Messiah was God's answer. They rejected the Messiah, and in rejecting the Messiah, they have spent 2,000 years still wandering amongst the Gentile nations. Your Bible is true. It's correct. It did not make a mistake. And the flip side of it is, God's still going to keep His covenant with Israel. Keep your eyes on the news. I can only imagine how thrilling it was for Zacharias to gaze down, my son is going to be the one that tells everybody about the Messiah. Verse 76, and let's wrap this up this morning. And you, as he speaks to his baby... I love this. Will be called the prophet of the highest. Think about this for a second. A prophet. He was a priest, but his son's going to be a prophet. What are the two offices? Priest and prophet. Who do you have to be related to to be the Messiah? You've got to be of the priestly line, you have to be of the kingly line, because you have to be able to fulfill both offices simultaneously. In all of this, what seems like mundane uh, regurgitation of family lineages, you find that Jesus is related to both the priestly line and to the Davidic line. Actually, the Davidic line on both sides, mother and father. And you, child, will be called a prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. And if you read Isaiah chapter 40, that's exactly what you see. Notice what it says there. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight the desert of a highway of our God. Every valley will be exalted and every mountain and hill shall be brought low and the crooked places shall be made straight. Isaiah said about the one who would announce the coming of the Messiah. To give knowledge of salvation to His people. That's why John said, Look, I'm not worthy to tie the sandals of the one who's coming after me. I'm just bringing you the message that He's coming. I'm not Him. Remember what happened to the Pharisees. We'll get there. They come down to the river and go, Well, we want to be baptized in your baptism. He says, No, there's a fundamental flaw in your thinking here. You need to go repent first. Getting baptized doesn't do you a bit of good unless you've repented. Amen? You need to repent and be saved. Otherwise baptism is meaningless. It's pointless. It doesn't do a thing for you. That's why we don't baptize infants in this church. Unless you know what you're doing, it means nothing. It's a public declaration of your faith, your trust in Jesus Christ as both Savior and Lord. He says, by the remission of their sins. You see, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And if your sins aren't remitted, if they're not paid for, you're still in sin. And if you're in sin, you don't see the kingdom of heaven. It's a simple progression. Through tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us, to give light to those who sit in darkness, and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. You see, they needed a prophet. They didn't need another priest. They had had priests... Uh, at infinitum they had heard the word of the Lord for nearly 1500 years they had been delivered by God it didn't mean a thing to them what they needed was someone to tell them exactly what was going to happen if they didn't repent and that would be the message of John he said repent for the kingdom of God is at hand that which you've always waited for and believed would come is upon you. And so he says this one would come and dismiss their debt. Cancel the debt. You, you see, that's what we need to have happen, amen? You show up at heaven's door, that, you know, that picture we all like to have in our minds. You get to heaven, and there, and it's always Peter, I don't know why, but he's at the gate. Peter's at the gate, and there's Peter at the gate, and I guess he's got a chair, and you know, the gates are made of pearl, we know that. And and you show up at heaven, and you've got a letter from a bunch of seminaries. I studied for 57 years. I speak Hebrew, I speak Greek, I even speak Aramaic. I have memorized the entire Bible, cover to cover. 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, I used to go out and I just spoke the word of God. If you never receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're just as lost as the worst murderer who's ever walked this earth. If your sins haven't been remitted, you're still lost. For by the works of flesh, no flesh is justified. That's what your Bible says. There's no work you can do to square away your own debt. It's not possible. Only Jesus can pay that debt. So the debt gets canceled. It's it's blotted out. And because of that, you have a new life, amen? That's what we call that life that we now live a new life. It's a new day. Your mind's renewed. You think differently. You act differently. There's a spring in your step where you used to look at the ground. You're now looking at heaven. all that happened was John came to this earth to remind us that Jesus was coming. And so the child grew and became strong in the spirit. And was in the deserts until the day of his manifestation to Israel. You see, John was a prophet of the highest, introducing to Israel a son of the highest, who was conceived in the womb by the power of the highest. It was all God's deal. God had done it all. And he continues this day to do what only he can do. Amen? If you've never asked Jesus into your life, a couple of us pastors will be up front. We'd love to pray with you. If you have, put your hand in God's hand. Go where He tells you to go. Do what He asks you to do. Because Jesus is coming soon. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this time this morning. and. Lord, for the power of your word to transform us, encourage us and strengthen us. And we pray, God, as we have spent this time, God, that you would just impress upon us the the beauty of your prophetic word that you told us about these things long before they ever happened. That you spoke through the Old Testament prophets to even remind us that even John would come. The one that tells us about how gracious you are. And Lord, that message of grace is the message of repentance as well. It's doing that 180-degree turn. It's going the other way. It's about the Lordship, not just the Saviorhood. And so, Lord, we thank you that it's as simple as confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord and asking you to come in. We pray that there's anyone here this morning that's never done that, that they would simply this morning just invite you to come in, forgive them of their sin, to cleanse them from all unrighteousness, and to take residence as their new master. We bless you. We thank you. We praise you. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.